With every story we hear, listen to, read, or tell, we make basic human connections that help define who we are. Welcome to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast devoted to those stories that tell us who we are when we're in the dark. Listen closely now. The dark is speaking, and the need to be heard never dies. Hello and welcome to episode 99 of Afterwards Paranormal. I'm your host, Shelby. In my search for true ghost stories, I discovered a ghostly gold mine, the True Ghost Story Book series edited and written by Zachary Knowles. The series includes true stories about haunted ships and boats, roads, Ouija boards, castles, asylums, woods, and more. Mrs. Grimley, our ghostly librarian here at the Cemetery Hills Library, has had to clear off an entire bookcase to get ready for all these stories. I'm wishing, I'm wishing for the ones that scare to find you, to find you today. <laughs> To celebrate this wondrous find, this episode is completely devoted to a couple of stories from Real Police Ghost Stories. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. No names have been withheld to protect anyone in this episode, not even the dead. Paranormal stories are often easy to dismiss due, at best, the circumstantial evidence of them and the usually unreliable witnesses involved. Well, I don't know about that. It's all too easy to see the loner who lives way out in the country claiming his house is haunted, just as a crazy person with tall tales or the hysterical babbling of someone as an overactive imagination with enough little pushes to make her see what wasn't there. But official reports are out there. Police officers trained to assess situations analytically and carefully can come across strange, unexplainable things that scared them beyond anything else their job had thrown at them and made them reassess their view of the world. These incidents are as varied in their apparent causes as they are in their ability to make you look over your shoulder, but all of them were witnessed by some of the most reliable witnesses out there, the police. More than that, though, these stories are just a cross-section of the many, many paranormal stories and cases told by police over the years. For every report featured, there are hundreds more out there. And many more, I'd be willing to bet, never made it to the police files. You are listening to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast that offers you dark tales from literature, lore, and you, the listener. If you're interested in contributing stories to the show, please stay tuned after the story for details.
I couldn't find much about Zachary Knowles himself, but you can count on many more stories from his books in future episodes. And now, three stories from Real Police Ghost Stories, edited and written by Zachary Knowles. Our first story is The Reanimated Woman. This story comes from a call-out in rural Illinois. A police officer and his partner were working the night shift, usually a quiet affair only dealing with the occasional loud drunk or speeding car. A call came in saying there was a suspected break-in at the local morgue, a bit of an odd place to break into admittedly, but there are a good number of chemicals inside which may be of interest to drug addicts. The officers took the call and headed to the morgue to investigate. Upon arrival, they found the custodian waiting outside for them, looking a little shaken. He told the officers he was mopping the floors when he saw something move in his peripheral vision. When he looked up, he saw someone run across the hallway from one side to the other and disappear into a room. Unfortunately, he could not give a good description of the person due to the fact that he had turned the lights off as he cleaned. Still, he was sure he saw someone, and being alone and unarmed, he decided discretion was the better part of valor and called the police. The two officers figured it might have been some kids breaking in for fun, or the custodian might have been seeing things, but the man was certain enough about what he saw to convince the officers to check it out. They started by verbally warning anyone inside the building to show themselves, but they did not receive an answer other than their voices echoing back at them. The officers, along with the custodian, did a sweep of the building by walking the central corridor, hands on guns, and checking each of the side rooms they came across. Most were labs for analysis. Some were storage for tools or administrative files. As they searched the rooms, they turned on the lights to make sure that they didn't miss anyone who might be hiding. One officer opened a door into a blackened room and fumbled to find the light switch. What he found was an empty room for the relatives of the deceased. He swept the room quietly, checking every place a person could hide. As he was doing so, his partner suddenly started shouting, Hey, stop, turn around. The other officer turned to see his partner with his gun raised toward the end of the corridor. She went round the corner, he said, indicating the left-hand route at the end of the corridor. That way's a dead end. There's no escape from there, the custodian explained. Knowing they had the intruder cornered, the officers advanced down the corridor calling out to the woman to reassure her she would be safe if she came out and surrendered. The first officer went to the end of the corridor and peered around the corner to see the woman standing at the end. The lights were still off in that part of the building, allowing him to have a rough image of her and her long, fair hair. Wanting to see if he could convince her to leave with him quietly, he stepped out from behind the corner. As soon as she saw him, however, she hauled open a big gray door behind her and ran through it, slamming the door behind her. The officer ran up to the door, but found it was locked. Banging on it for a little while, he called out to the woman to show herself, but there was no response. His partner came up with the custodian, and he explained the situation, which seemed to concern the custodian. Apparently the door couldn't be locked from the inside. The custodian unlocked it, and the two officers headed inside, guns raised. Shining their flashlights around the room, they revealed everything except the woman they were trying to find. The place was eerie in their light, and one officer felt it was strangely cold, even for a morgue. 
The custodian came in behind them and flicked the lights on, filling the room with light. It was largely empty, some workspaces along the sides, equipment against one wall, and two gurneys for bodies in the middle of the room. One gurney was covered with a sheet, a body shape underneath it. It would have been a clever hiding place if the room had been more regularly used. But as it was, the officers knew they had their suspect. As they approached the gurney, they realized something was wrong. There was an unearthly stench emanating from the shape. It wasn't from someone alive or even someone unwashed and sweaty, but rather smelled of rot and death. When the officers pulled the sheet off the body, there lay the woman that they had been chasing through the building, a toe tag hanging off her foot, stating she had died four days earlier. Our next story is Asua. Back in the late 1980s, in a middle-sized town in Oregon originally settled by Finnish immigrants, there was a well-known old man who lived in one of the Victorian-style townhouses common in the early 1900s. He had lived in that house since he was two years old. Many said he and the house had become one in a way, even starting to look like each other, both graying and slowly wearing down with age. Born in 1915, the man had seen many things change in his town. He was relatively liked around town. Unfortunately, the old man was diagnosed with terminal colon cancer and given six months to live. The news was a blow to the community. The man spent a good deal of time saying his goodbyes to people and generally making peace before his final day. The night it happened was cold and clear. Around three in the morning, the police received a call from a concerned neighbor explaining she hadn't seen the old man leave his house in a couple of days, nor had seen a light on recently. Fearing the worst, two officers were dispatched to his house to check on him. When they arrived, multiple neighbors were awoken by the lights of the squad car and went to see what was going on. Realizing what probably happened, many began to cry. The two officers entered the man's house through the front door after finding it unlocked and were immediately greeted by a massive elk head mounted in the entranceway of the house. Its creepy staring eyes made the officers feel like it was watching them. Passing it by and making their way upstairs, they went to the old man's room and found him lying on the floor beside his still-made bed. They checked for a pulse and confirmed he was dead. Saddened, they called into the station and asked for an ambulance to pick up the body to deliver to the coroner. At the time, the town only employed a couple of paramedics. Thus, only one paramedic was on the scene. The two officers were asked by the paramedic to help him carry the body downstairs to the ambulance. At that point, things started to become odd. When the three men began to make their way downstairs with the body, they began to struggle. It was then that the lead officer realized something was different about the elk head they saw on their way into the house. 
No longer was the head sitting upright as it was when they originally entered the home, but it was instead turned to the side. Underneath the head was something written in wet red paint, Asua. The officer, with his hair standing on end, knew the word from the Finnish language as his grandparents spoke it. Asua means stay or remain. Still, the officer reached out and swiped a little of the red stuff off the wall, sniffed it, and realized it was blood dripping from the elk head. Freaked out, he yelled up to his partner and the paramedic to tell them what he saw, and they also became panic-stricken. The paramedic decided they need to get the body out of the house as fast as they could and told the officer to open the back of the ambulance so they could get the body in quickly. He agreed and ran to the ambulance. But just as his foot left the porch, all the sirens and lights on the vehicles began to go off simultaneously, creating a blinding light show and a deafening noise that had the neighbors running to get away from it. Thoroughly frightened, the officer hauled open the door of the ambulance and turned to watch the progress of his partner and the paramedic. They had just managed to get the stretcher with the body onto the front porch when simultaneously every window in the house imploded inwards with a deafening racket. The officer by the ambulance watched as the porch of the house collapsed. It wasn't like the porch gave way, but like the house just gave up. The whole porch in front of the house slept forward with the sound of tearing wood, creating a slope up to the second floor windows. Dust scattered everywhere and people came back out of their houses to help the officer as he tried to find his partner in the paramedic. Going around the side of the collapsed porch and into the gap between the fallen roof and the still-standing walls of the porch, he found his partner shaking and babbling. At first he couldn't get much sense out of him. He was repeating, he sat up. After a little while of calming him down, the officer managed to find out what his partner witnessed. Apparently, as the porch came down, the old man's body clawed its way out of the body bag and started screaming horribly. The first officer checked the body bag, and sure enough, it was torn to pieces, and the body was sitting up, its face in a rictus scream of terror. Horrified, the officer threw a tarp over the body to hide it and went to help his partner, who wouldn't go anywhere near the house again. The other ambulance in the town came to help out and took the officer and the paramedic away to a trauma center to assess any injuries while the first officer filled out the paperwork, although what he wrote was anyone's guess. How does one report a house collapsing on its own and a dead body tearing its way out of a body bag? The story has since become a local legend around town and the house stands as it was left that night. No one dares disturb it further. And our final story is The Key Holder. In the dead of night, two officers responded to an alarm at an old office building in a rough part of town. The building was time-worn, largely converted into a series of offices with an attached pharmacy. The dispatcher told the officers the alarm was tripped in an upstairs office, but before entering, they had to wait for a key holder to meet them there. After a short while, the key holder 
a weary, quiet, middle-aged man showed up and the three people headed inside. Being an older office building without windows in the corridors, the officers only had their flashlights to see since the lights were on timers. They headed to the end of the main corridor where all the offices branched off and proceeded to stairs located behind a door. It was at that point they discovered the key holder did not have a key for that particular door. Frustrated, they went back along the corridor to the elevator, telling the key holder to remain on the main floor. After going upstairs, the elevator opened up to a dark corridor with one overhead light fixture at the end, creating a pool of light. Thinking it a bit weird, but nothing too troubling, the officers began to check the doors in the corridor, finding them all locked and secure. Most of the offices were occupied by doctors or small businesses. They reached the final office with all of its lights on and found it open. Calling ahead to warn anyone inside they were there, the officers entered the office, finding a sizable reception and waiting room area with about a dozen examination rooms. The air inside was much colder than the rest of the building, but they dismissed it, as temperature imbalances in such large buildings weren't unusual. The officers cleared all the rooms, finding them empty of everything, including furniture, but it didn't seem long since the offices had been used. Not finding anyone, or evidence that someone had been there recently, they chalked it up to a faulty alarm, turned out the lights, and left the office area. But as soon as they did, they realized something was very wrong. The small overhead light that had illuminated the unlocked offices was out, and the elevator lights were flickering. One of the officers looked over at his partner and saw his face was drained of color. His hands were clammy and shaking. He asked his partner, What's wrong? Weren't all those doors we just checked closed and locked? Yeah, so? Well, now they're all standing open, he said, pointing with a shaking finger. Looking down the corridor, the officer saw his partner was right. Every door they had checked only a few minutes ago was now wide open. No one had come in during their search of the office, and the doors had been locked, so if anyone was there, they needed keys for the whole corridor. What was stranger, the officers hadn't heard a single thing. Drawing their guns, they set about rechecking and clearing those offices again. Each room was empty, and nothing had been moved aside from the doors. Upon reaching the office at the end, they checked it again, feeling the temperature was even colder than the last time they were in there. They were getting more and more nervous, but the breaking point was when they left the offices. As soon as they stepped back out into the corridor, the door slammed shut behind them. Suddenly, their radios went berserk with static and screeching, loudly blaring no matter how hard they tried to shut them off. The officers later reported strange voices yelling at them through the static. Not wanting to stay another moment, they made their way hurriedly back to the elevator and took it back down to contact the keyholder again. When the officers got back downstairs, they looked for the keyholder, but he was nowhere to be found. One of the officers radioed dispatch, asking to be put in touch with the keyholder so he could advise him of what they'd found and ask his thoughts. The dispatcher, in a confused voice, told him the keyholder was still en route to them with an ETA of five minutes. The officer told dispatch that they had just been in the building with the keyholder. In response, the dispatcher told him there was no way they'd been out with a keyholder already, as the alarm company, who originally made the call, had only just managed to get a hold of her. The officer's hair stood on end at that point. 
He asked Dispatch to clarify. She explained due to the late hour, they'd had a hard time finding someone and only just reached a local key holder who was still on the way to the building. The officer thanked the dispatcher and hung up, now just as frightened as his partner. When the real key holder arrived, the officers immediately asked her about the man who had first let them into the building. She asked the officers to describe the man to her, and as they did, her eyes widened and she suddenly became quite shaken. That sounds like one of the doctors who used to lease an office on the second floor at the end of the corridor, she said to them. They probed further to find out if that was the exact office where the door had slammed on its own. Her response was strange. That doctor committed suicide at his home a few days ago. We've been getting weird alarms ever since. Reportedly, the officers still hesitate to take calls at that building. I know that here in Salt Lake City, my hometown, the police are often called to the Capitol Theater, the McCune Mansion, and Pioneer Memorial Theater in response to strange activities going on in those buildings after hours. I would love to see the reports made on those after their investigation. Next week is our 100th episode. I'm so excited. To celebrate, I would love to have some stories from you to read on the podcast. I usually record the podcast on Saturday, so anything you send me before then is sure to get on the podcast. Anything you send after that time is also sure to get on a podcast. Just send me stuff. Thank you so much for joining me here on Afterwards Paranormal. I've been your host, Shelby. And as always, I leave the last words for you. Thank you for listening to Afterwards Paranormal Podcast. Please join us on Patreon and Facebook. You can listen to Afterwards Paranormal on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact us at afterwardsstories at gmail.com. And remember, the need to be heard never dies. Thank you.